Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Looking this evening at verses 13 and 14. Let's bow together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Almighty God and our loving Heavenly Father, we bless you and praise you for gathering the called-out body of Jesus Christ in this place to worship you on the day in which Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And as we come now, O God, to contemplate, and more than that, to hear proclaim from Christ himself these glorious inexhaustibly glorious things that we will read now in the pages of your word of resurrection with Christ and full and free forgiveness of our hell-deserving sins in him. Work supernatural power in our midst that we would behold these things, that we would understand these incomprehensible things, and that sinners would take hold of Jesus Christ for newness of life in him and the forgiveness of sins in him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. We continue in this chapter to peer into the treasure chest of Christ's fullness of saving grace. In verse 12, we saw the striking statement last time that you, believer, were raised with Jesus Christ when God raised him from the dead. When God raised Christ from the dead, he raised you from the dead in Christ. How is this possible? How can this be? Because everything Christ did and experienced, he did for us. It is impossible that any believer could remain in a condition of death because as goes Christ, so goes the Christian. Christ's resurrection from the realm of death is our resurrection from the realm of death. And so when verse 12 mentions God's working, a working that consists in raising Christ from the dead, let us not fail to see that God's working, which raised Christ from the dead, is also one which raised us with Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ outwardly, bodily, includes with it the resurrection of the believer inwardly in the inner self already in this age, and which is also, of course, the guarantee of the believer's bodily resurrection at the end of this age. But that is not all. Paul goes on to show us the significance of resurrection already with Christ in verses 13 and following. In particular, here we see how resurrection with Christ 
reverses and does away with our sinful status and condition in all of its components. The application of redemption to the sinner, which is received, verse 12, through faith, is one of resurrection life in and with Christ from death and all that goes along with death. So from here on out, just about, throughout the, book of, the rest of the book of Colossians, as Paul shows us more of the significance of resurrection with Christ, we see that this impacts us in numerous ways. Just to give a, a roadmap for what lies ahead. Resurrection with Christ impacts us personally with respect to the guilt of sin in verses 13 and 14. Resurrection with Christ impacts us with respect to the evil spiritual forces hostile against us, verse 15. It impacts how we deal with legalistic additions to God's requirements for man, verses 16 to 23. Resurrection with Christ impacts us environmentally, by which I mean that our lives now take place in a new heavenly environment, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And resurrection with Christ impacts us ethically, as we see throughout the rest of chapter 3. Resurrection with Christ means that wives are new wives, husbands are new husbands, children are new children, parents are new parents, workers are new workers, and masters are new masters. So dear congregation, the meaning, the significance, the power of resurrection with Jesus Christ already right now cannot be overstated. And Paul goes to length to unpack its significance for the believer. So we continue to peer into this treasure chest of resurrection. And our focus now in verses 13 and 14 has to do with how resurrection with Christ deals with the guilt of our sin, its legal aspect. And I hope to demonstrate to you from Scripture that resurrection with Christ means the forgiveness of sins for the Christian. It's helpful at this point to hear another translation of what Paul says here to get a fuller, clearer picture of what he's showing us. Let me give you a rough translation of verses 13 and 14, because there are certain things that get lost in other translations that, that I want us to appreciate. So here, here's a rough translation. And you being dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all the trespasses, having canceled the record of debt against us with its edicts, which was hostile to us, and he eliminated it from our midst, having nailed it to the cross. So you can go back and compare those translations to see what, is, what we need to appreciate here in, in, this, in this passage. It's easy to get lost in this rich treasure chest. I'll show you sometime a diagram of these sentences. It is very complicated, what Paul is showing us here. But let's try and keep things simple in our outline this evening. We'll look at resurrection and forgiveness, all these things in two ways, our hopeless status and our new status. So first of all, let's look at our hopeless status. Here Paul shows us something of the sinfulness of our, of our sin. Adam was our first covenant head, our representative before God, and in Adam's fall sinned we all. When he broke covenant with God, 
he plunged the entire human race into sin and misery. The sinfulness of our sin, the misery of our sin as covenant breakers in Adam is so awful and heinous and complicated that no sinner could ever do anything to amend it, to cure it, to fix it. Go and read sometime Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 or Romans 3 verses 9 through 20 and all the Old Testament passages Paul cites there and start to feel the weight of this impossible situation that all of us are in as sinners. This hopeless status that is true of you and true of me apart from Christ is summarized well in our Confession of Faith, chapter 6. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. So let's notice here specifically how Paul presses home to us our hopeless status here in in a few ways. The first thing Paul mentions there in verse 13 is, you were dead in your trespasses. Similar statement in Ephesians 2 verse 1, dead there, death in sin is a reference to, at the very least, total inability, total inability to change the status as one buried in the, in the tomb cannot come out of his own power or volition, as that one is totally helpless for physical life, so we also are totally hopeless to change our spiritual condition. And notice, Paul does not mentally, uh, simply mention that we were dead. That might communicate something. You were dead in your trespasses. Trespasses, plural, These are the countless ways, the countless sins, the actual sins, the ways we broke God's law in thought, in word, in deed, and in desire, inwardly and outwardly, what others may have have seen and what only God would have seen. So death and sin, our condition and status apart from Jesus Christ, means that all you do is sin. Even if it is outwardly good, outwardly something God commands, you have the wrong goal, motive, and desire. Your goal was not the glory of God, it was your own self-promotion. Your motive was not a heart purified by faith and love toward God, it was selfishness. Your standard was not what God says in His Word, it was whatever you thought was right or what others told you was right. That was your, your comprehensive condition apart from Jesus Christ. And death in it means there was nothing you could have done to change it. Moving on, Paul talks about how we were dead also in the uncircumcision of the flesh. This echoes earlier in verse 11. Verse 11, when Paul mentioned how in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here, moving forward to refer to our hopeless status in verse 13, dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, this refers to our sin nature apart from Christ. This is summarized in Shorter Catechism 18. 
The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed it, proceed from it. So this reference to the uncircumcision of our flesh, this is all of us, Jew and Gentile, male and female, apart from Jesus Christ. Not one section of the world, not one race of humanity, all who descend from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We are all guilty before God, all liable to the judicial wrath of God, and there is no hope of escape from that wrath. Our sin nature was something we could never undo or change about ourselves. Apart from Christ, our hearts were 24-7 factories of hatred toward God in all that we thought, said, and did. It is a situation that perhaps especially the, the Colossians need to appreciate, but that you and I need to appreciate this is something no religious exercise could ever change. Physical circumcision could never remove the, the heart that needed to be changed. Just also as, as baptism cannot actually baptize you into Jesus Christ vitally and by faith. No religious ceremony can change your heart. Only God, by a supernatural work, can change the heart of a sinner to be in right standing with him. This is a hopeless situation that no sinner could ever take care of. But notice also, moving into verse 14, this fuller picture, adding to this picture of our hopeless status, where there is mention of the record of debt with its demands, which was hostile to us. So here, apparently, there is reference, there's some debate on this, but at the very least, Paul's making reference here of this record of debt that stood against us. There is damning documentation of all, verse 13, your trespasses. There is a legal bookkeeping against you in God's court of law, this record of debt that stands against you. Documentation of all your trespasses, none of which go unnoticed by a holy God. Every gossiping word, every movement of anger, of pride, all complaining, every lingering lustful look, on and on the list goes. There was more than enough, this imagery of this record of debt brings up, that there was more than enough in each of our sins to condemn us to eternal conscious torment, how much more so the entire record of all our trespasses. This was, as Paul puts it there, it was hostile against us. There was no need in God's court of law for a sophisticated lawyer to bring a case against us. The record of debt did its own arguing. There was no doubt our own sin record spoke for itself, and the verdict was beyond all doubt guilty in God's sight. This was our hopeless condition, and this is you, my friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ, this is your hopeless condition, but hear and listen how you may be saved from it, and hear, believer, what you were saved from and how. That leads us on, secondly, to 
our new status, our new status. And so in, in all that we've seen, in all of this hopelessness, it was exactly at that point that God the Father applied Jesus Christ and all of his benefits to hell-deserving sinners like us. It was in our impossible hopelessness that resurrection with Jesus Christ became ours through faith. And as dark as our status was, the light of the glory of God's grace shone all the more brightly. Notice how Paul shows us this new status in Christ here in a few ways. In verse 13, he, God, made you alive together with him. This is the main verb here in this section, the main thought. This is why we're giving it such weight. Everything else hinges on, revolves around this main, this main verb, God made you alive together with Jesus Christ. And with resurrection with Christ comes all manner of blessing. It was at this point of our total inability incessantly racking up a longer and longer sin record, totally unable to do anything about it. It was at this point that God made us alive with Jesus Christ. His resurrection, which includes our resurrection with him, is the main thing Paul wants us to see here. Resurrection with Christ is the powerful, the infinitely valuable solution to our sin problem, specifically our guilt problem. So this, this component of this main thing of resurrection with Jesus Christ, including other things with it, Paul goes on to show what is included. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Do you see how Paul moves seamlessly there in verse 13? from how God made alive together made us alive together with Christ and that includes the forgiveness of all of our trespasses resurrection with Christ spells the complete blotting out of all your sin debt that is one of the countless and glorious implications of resurrection life in union with the risen Christ so this shows us how, how powerful, how meaningful Christ's resurrection is for us and our resurrection with him. Christ became our representative sin bearer upon the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That representative sin bearing of Jesus Christ, it is so exhaustive, it is so complete that not one, not some, not most, but all of the sins of all the elect, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Jesus Christ, and there is nothing for God himself to hold against you, believer. Do you ever think about this? What one sinner must suffer for his sins apart from Jesus Christ eternal conscious torment. And what did Jesus Christ suffer in place of sinners as the representative sin bearer? Not eternal conscious torment for one sinner, but for an innumerable host of all God's elect. And how could that eternity of punishment be exhausted if it's 
eternal. How could that eternal punishment be exhausted in a matter of a few hours on Golgotha? It's the glorious mystery of the infinite value of the finite sufferings of Jesus Christ. And we could even say that as as Christ's experience of hell on earth, suffering the condemning wrath of God not for one sinner but for all elect sinners, there was multiplied an eternity of wrath upon him, each sinner piled on top of, of another, being imputed to Jesus Christ. In his finite sufferings, there is infinite value of exhausting the wrath of God and providing the ground of the forgiveness of the sins that made that wrath in the first place, that brought on that wrath in the first place. That is how exhaustive, how complete, how sufficient is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. Not just some of your sins, but all of them. Not just now and back then, but now, back then, and all that are yet to come. And not just yours, but men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All the sins of all God's elect are forgiven in Christ. Not even God himself has a record to bring against us for our condemnation. No more condemnation, only right standing with God. It was at this point when we were dead in our sins, hopeless, unable to do anything about it, it was at this point that God made us alive with Jesus Christ and so provided the, the reality by which our sins are forgiven. Now, in the, in the hopeless situation, when we were dead in our sins, God the righteous judge could do nothing but condemn us and hold us liable to his condemning wrath. As a righteous judge, he had to do this. But now, now that we are raised with Christ, God the righteous judge has nothing to condemn us for. The sin debt is canceled. There is nothing for us to owe because Jesus paid it all. Think of 1 Timothy 3.16 as this expresses what Jesus himself did for us, experienced for us. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There, the resurrection of Christ is Christ's justification. He was justified in His resurrection from the dead. Not justified from His sins because He was sinless, but justified as our representative sin-bearer. As our sin-bearer, Christ became guilty and liable to condemnation in God's sight. And as the one who was condemned by God, he had to come out of a state of condemnation into one of right standing with God, a state of justification. He had to do that in order to bring us out of a state of condemnation into one of justification. He emptied the wrath of God against us, and blazed the trail into a new world of righteousness and right standing with God. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson, following Richard Gaffin, explains this. Having been made sin in his death, in his resurrection, he was declared as our representative to be what he in fact always was personally, righteous. 
He did not see decay because he was God's holy one, Acts 2.27. Dying in our place as the condemned one, he was raised as the justified one. Union with Christ in his death is the removal of condemnation, but union with Christ in his resurrection is the granting of righteousness unto justification. This is what we have in union with Jesus Christ, the full removal of divine wrath, and the full application of divine favor. This is why Paul can say in Romans 4, the righteousness that is received by faith will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, trans- our, our trespasses and raised for our justification. Resurrection in and with Jesus Christ spells the forgiveness of sins and the granting of right standing with God. Notice also another component, another element of this new status. As Paul talks about in verse 14, the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Canceling there means to erase. That long record of debt that stood against you, that itself was the ground of your condemnation, all gone, all wiped out. There there is no trace of it any longer. It has been destroyed. There is nothing standing against you in God's court of law, believer, because Jesus took it upon himself in your place. There is nothing hostile against the believer in God's court of law. You are as righteous in the sight of Almighty God as Jesus Christ himself is because you've been raised with him. All legal ground of condemnation has been removed and legal ground of full righteousness has been established fully and forever. What, what about your, your, your sins that you remember? Those, those regrets all the sins that you've committed, all those things that haunt you, all those things that you are ashamed of, that if people would know about, you would, be, you would be shamed and cast out, all the things you still struggle with, all the ways your affection is half-hearted. All of that is taken care of. Everything in this record of debt has been wiped away, has been taken upon Christ, and it now no longer is against you, believer. It's all taken care of. So no more shame, no more regret. Go to Christ. Keep receiving this forgiveness. Keep feeding upon him by faith. Keep seeing more and more of the bottomless application of redemption to you, the everlasting grace sufficient to cancel out all of your sins. And this this is one thing lost in translation here. In verse 14, when it talks about this he set aside... More fully, it is he eliminated this from our midst. Now, that, that spatial aspect, that from our midst aspect, that should make us think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, about how the scapegoat receives the sins of the people and is cast out of the presence of God. Lane Tipton describes it this way. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron, as a high priest, would take a goat called the scapegoat, and he would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sins of Israel over it. And when he confessed Israel's sins over the head of that goat, there was a symbolic transfer of Israel's sin to that goat, and it would be led outside the camp, 
bearing away the sin and the guilt of Israel as the scapegoat. It would be led away from the presence of God to die in the wilderness desert alone. Now, who, who does that make you think of? Sunday school answer, Jesus is that perfect scapegoat. As he cried in dereliction, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did so because our sins were transferred to him and he was cast out of the presence of God, guaranteeing that God will never forsake us. That promise in Psalm 103 being fulfilled in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so with the removal of that sin, it has been eliminated from our midst. There is nothing standing between fellowship between you and God any longer. All the all that stood between you of God has been you and God has been taken away in Jesus Christ. And notice this graphic imagery in verse 14. He nailed it to the cross. When Christ was nailed to the cross, as he was the one who became sin for us, our record of debt transferred to him was nailed with him to the cross. That is why he died for us in our place, paying your infinite debt to an infinitely holy God. Again, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, what does this have to do with the resurrection? Resurrection in and with Jesus Christ. This is the same kind of thing we see in Hebrews chapter 7. There in Hebrews 7, Christ is the ultimate and final high priest of the people of God. Why? Because, verse 16, he has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Christ's priesthood is based upon his resurrection from the dead. That is what indestructible life is. It is resurrection life. Resurrection life means that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Romans 6, 9. It is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 4, where God says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was one of the problems with all priests of the old covenant. They were sinners. They offered sacrifices that couldn't take away sin. They ministered on earth. And they all died. And in all these ways... Christ shows himself to be the one true and final high priest, he who is sinless, he who offered once and for all the perfect sacrifice of himself, a sacrifice that actually takes sin away. He ministers in heaven, not on earth, but of special importance, he has been raised from the dead never to die again. That is why he is a priest forever. No revolving door of sinners who only in a small, shadowy way bring us into the copy of God's presence on earth. But now, fully and finally, a sinless high priest who lives by the power of an indestructible life. He is the ultimate priest who incessantly brings us into God's presence. 
No other priest can live forever because he will eventually die. But Christ, who died as our sacrifice, now lives by resurrection life as our last and ultimate glorious high priest. Hebrews goes on to emphasize this. Hebrews seven twenty three and following. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so, dear believer, your great high priest, Jesus Christ, is alive, is alive in the power of an indestructible life in the realm of resurrection in heaven for you. And it is in that resurrection life that he always keeps you in God's presence in heaven, incessantly offering his perfect work to God for you. Paul speaks of these things negatively here, the forgiveness of sins, but to speak of the forgiveness of sins means also the granting, the imputation of righteousness. And this is just the benefit of, of union with Christ known as justification. Summarized in Shorter Catechism 33, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed transferred, credited to us, and received by faith alone. It is both of these things, forgiveness of sins, because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which as we see here, comes in resurrection with Jesus Christ. If God merely forgives your sins, that is not good news. In that case, it's up to you to provide a God-approved righteousness of eternal, otherworldly value. You're back to square one, something you cannot do. It would be up to you to earn eternal life and right standing to dwell in the presence of an infinitely holy God. But thankfully, in Christ, not only is our sin forgiven, but full righteousness is credited to us. Gerhardus Voss says beautifully, Justification is not merely the act of God whereby he puts the sinner in a position to open a new page in his life's book, which for the time being would still be blank, and on which he himself would still have to inscribe new merits. All the pages are opened by God at one time. On all pages, the handwriting of sin against him is wiped out, and in its place the promise of eternal life is written. So not only is our guilt taken away, we also receive the infinitely valuable righteousness of the risen Christ himself. The gospel is always better, always better than we think it is. And so as we, as we conclude with this emphasis on the, the relationship between the resurrection and forgiveness of our sins, our resurrection with Christ in his resurrection, spells forgiveness of sins. When Christ walked out of that tomb on the third day, your sins did not come out with him. If Christ remains dead, then he is no better than all those animal sacrifices who remain dead after the priests sacrificed them. 1 Corinthians 15, 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But by implication, since Christ is raised, our sins are wiped out. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven is vital for us. It means that Jesus, the sinless high priest, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, priest and sacrifice all in one, it means that he brings a perfect and eternally valuable sacrifice into God's presence in the true temple in heaven for us. Listen to how Herman Bovink puts it. Christ's resurrection is a divine endorsement of his work, a declaration of the power and value of his death, the amen of the Father upon the it is finished of the Son. The resurrection is God's approval of this sacrifice. All the other sacrifices that precede Christ are dead because they're not worthy, because they are impotent, because they do nothing. But Christ has been raised because his work is perfect and it is finished. And God the Father looks upon all the work of Christ and says, Amen, and raises him from the dead and raises us from the dead in him and with him. It's as Jesus himself says in John 5. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Receive this. Receive Jesus Christ for passing from death to life. And that disobedience of the first Adam we we referenced earlier The obedience of the last Adam more than makes up for the disobedience of the first Adam. Romans 5.18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Go sometime through Isaiah 40, Isaiah 61, and how we receive double from the Lord for all of our sins. And this brings another angle upon during the Reformation when Rome would say, you cannot speak of a justification full and free at the beginning of the Christian life. You can't talk about justification that way. People will live in sin. People will be sinning so that grace may abound. You need to leave it in intention, leave it in question so people will actually work hard for God. But no. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The forgiveness of sins in union with the risen Christ means that we hate the sin that needed to be forgiven. And as we'll see as we go through Colossians 2 and 3, Resurrection with Jesus Christ not only means the forgiveness of our sins, it means walking in that newness of life that is ours in Jesus Christ. What about those future sins, though? 
You say it's past, present, and future, but my sins are really bad. Well, Confession of Faith 11 and 5 says, well, God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, which is just a reiteration from 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A holy God forgiving sins? Yes, because there is a perfect sacrifice offered to Him in Jesus Christ crucified and raised. We go to God united to our risen priest Jesus Christ as raised with Him. He who ever lives to intercede for us and we find forgiveness of sins past present, and future. Receive the Savior, rest upon Him, and feel the full sufficiency of His work for you, and walk in His ways. Amen, and may God add His blessing to the preaching of His Word.